Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which is a friendly and inclusive community. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This episode, I'm talking to Dr. Deb Jones. Deb has a PhD in social and behavioral psychology and worked as a professor for more than 20 years at Kent State University. She has been in dog sports for more than 25 years, competing in obedience, rally, and agility. Deb is the author of 12 books about dog training and currently teaches both online and in person. I was happy to get to talk to her about what behavioral traits make a good sports candidate. So hi, Deb. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, hi, Jessica. I'm happy to. Very happy to be here and excited to talk to you. Before we get started with you know, I think the most important question first is probably who are the dogs who you live with and, and what are you doing with them right now? Because that's what everyone needs to know first about everybody. Okay, yes. First things first. Um, at the moment, I live with four dogs. Um, I have two border collies. Zen is 12 and a half. And I always tell everybody he's the perfect dog. I have met Zen and I can I can say that Zen is in fact the perfect dog. He is. He's just the perfect mixture of everything you would want in a, in a dog. Um, and then Star, also Border Collie, who is nine. I thought she was 10 for a while, but I've been told by the breeder that she's nine. <laughs> so I lose track of years pretty easily. Um, and she is a lovely dog. She is a very sensitive dog. And so much different than Zen um, in temperament. And then my roommate has two Shelties right now, um, Tigger, who is three, and Pixel, who is two. Um, and over the years, we have co-owned some Shelties together. Um, so there have been a lot of Shelties in and out of this house. <laughs> but that's who we live with now. So you're a fan of herding dogs then? I am a fan of herding dogs. I must be. And I don't know why some days, because they can certainly get on your last nerve. Yeah, we were just talking before this <laughs> started about the, the powerful yip that my, my border collie likes to emit. So, and what, I actually don't know if you are competing with either of them in, with, with Zen or Star, um, but maybe you could talk either about that or what you did in the past with other dogs. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I did compete with both Zen and Star, but haven't for probably the last five or six years. Um, with Zen, he competed in agility. He um, competed in obedience and got his utility dog title when he was like very young, like less than two years old. And um, then rallied champion like three times or so. Um, and so Zen was, again, perfect dog. You take him in, he does the thing, whatever that thing happens to be. He's happy to do it. Um, Star got mostly rally training, and she did well. She did just as well as Zen, sometimes beating him. I would often show them in the same class, and it was always interesting to see who would beat who on any given day. Um, and before that, I also competed in agility with lots of dogs. Um, I had Papillons that I competed with, and my one Papillon Copper, who got both his mock and his UD in the same week. Um, that was a good week. 
Um, and then um, a little a little Fabian named Luna that I had. And then we did agility with a whole ton of Shelties. And so did a lot, got a lot of titles with them. Um, but over the years, now I'm getting to the point where I got to the point where it was just I'd done everything I really wanted to do sports wise. I still love to train. And for me, it was always about the training. Um, I don't need to show my dogs in order to train my dogs. And I can reach goals that I set myself without having to spend the time and the energy and the money. If only I had back all the money I spent on agility trials now, I'd, I'd be living differently. <laughs> so that's a little... It's convenient in COVID times to not expect to go to shows. <laughs> it is. And I think that um, we're going to see a whole lot more virtual competition kinds of things happening for a while now, which is good because you can you can do a lot without going out around people in order to train your dog. Yes, for sure. And so now I believe you are doing some teaching of other people how to train. Yes, uh, I've been teaching um, dog training since about 1992. Um, I'm thinking back quite a ways here. I was actually still in graduate school at that point, but I started while I was getting my degree in psychology. I also started teaching some dog training classes because I got a dog um, in grad school because it was so stressful and I was bored. And that turned out to be a very good choice in the bigger picture. So since that time, I've taught dog training classes of all different sorts. Of course, back then it was all in person because that's all we had. Um, the internet was just really getting going about then. Um, but so through the years, I've done seminars, conferences, a lot of things along those lines. And now, as you know, I teach at Fenzy Dog Sports Academy online, and I do basically almost all of my teaching there between classes, webinars, and workshops. Yeah. And so I would say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that the the theme that I hear coming from you with your FDSA classes is focus. Focus is a big thing. And it was the thing that I first started with um, when I was training back when we were doing a lot of agility, like in the late 1990s. Um, I had a dog, Copper, who um, my papillon, who was very sensitive, very soft, but very smart, loved to train. But when you'd get to a trial, he'd sort of freeze up and slow down and just not be the dog that I knew I had. And then um, my friend Judy had a Sheltie who was the total opposite. He was Saber. He would get on that start line and he would go. He didn't necessarily take any of the obstacles she wanted him to take, but he was fast. <laughs> he was so screaming fast. And so... You would think these are two totally different problems that you have the soft, sensitive, slow down dog on one side and the wild, high, out of control dog on the other side. But in reality, they both, to me, came back to the same thing, which was a lack of focus on the trainer. Um, and they were more, Copper was more interested in the environment because he was worried about it. Saber was more interested in the environment because it was more fun and because it was enjoyable. And I saw that if we could change their environmental focus, to more of a focus on the trainer, that was sort of the start of, of my work there and coming up with exercises um, that would help that to happen. And so then since that point in time, um, I've, of course, worked with this concept a lot, revised it a lot, written several books about it, um, did several sets of DVDs back in the day with Clean Run on it. Um, 
And I don't even know if people still buy DVDs anymore. I think they're pretty much out of out of stock at this point. They were streaming for a while, but there's older stuff. So that was older stuff. Look at the more recent stuff because I'm constantly changing what I think and how I approach training. And probably even in the last five years, I'd say everything that I do with focus has improved. It's gotten better because I've been able to sort of step back now and look at all my students and their dogs and the challenges they're having, which are just like the challenges I had 20 years ago. But now I know so much better the kinds of things that we could do to help them. And so that's been a long evolution in terms of developing these ideas that I have about focus and about kind of the best way to what I always say is develop a working relationship with your dog. You're developing that relationship. It doesn't have to do with how much you love your dog or how much you enjoy your dog. It has to do with how you work together and making sense to the dog so they can be a partner in that process. Yeah, that's lovely. Oh, um, good. <laughs> and so as you know, our focus through this podcast, when I, I, it's supposed to be about breeding. And so there's a lot of, uh, we think a lot about genetics, but it's not, obviously it's not just genetics, whether your dog has a nice relationship with you or not. It's also how you manage the dog. Um, so I'm sort of thinking about where we, what we should dive into next, like which direction to go, but maybe starting with first things first and genetics. Okay. Um, so you've worked with a bunch of students then you said that they've had a, you've seen a whole lot of different problems that come down to focus. Yes. So maybe what kinds of dogs are people getting and, and how much does that contribute? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And genetics is so vitally important, right? We can't override genetics with anything that we do. We can alter things a little bit. We can, we can try to move dogs to behave more in the direction that we would like, but we can't make them something they're not. And this was hard. This was a hard thing for me to come to as a behavioral psychologist, because our foundation is kind of this idea that environment can change everything. But we know now that is just not true. That is just not the case. It's not all about what you do to or with your dog. You have to start with good genetic material. And so what happens a lot in, dog, in the dog training world and in the dog sport world is that somebody gets a dog just for a family pet, and then they sort of stumble into dog sports somehow or the other. And they go, wow, this looks like fun. And it is fun. It's like some of the most fun you can have. So they're going, wow, this looks like fun. I want to do it with my dog. Um, however, their dog um, probably genetically wasn't bred to be a strong working dog. And they didn't have the background of working with the person. So they're trying to throw the dog into something that the dog has no basis to understand how to do it. And the problem is both the genetic aspect of it, I think, as well as the fact that they haven't had the kind of exposure and education and experience that would make this now easier for them to do. I'm taking a dog to an agility trial. You know, every, and everybody wants to talk about agility being fun for all dogs. And I actually have a podcast that I just said it's not. <laughs> not a podcast. I'm sorry, I have a webinar where I'm just saying it's not fun. 
for all dogs. It can be very, very stressful for some dogs. And people, yeah, people are surprised by that because that's not what they've been led to believe. Um, And they've also possibly seen that in training, their dogs behave very differently than they do at trials. Um, So, but to to kind of pull it back to genetics, it matters a lot. It matters what raw material you start with. You can make your job so much easier if you either by luck, chance, or you actually know what you're doing, get the right dog for the job you want them to do. One of the reasons I love herding dogs and I love border collies in particular is because they want to do whatever I want to do. So they make it really, really easy. They honestly don't seem to care a whole lot. You want to do obedience? Great. You want to do agility? Great. You want to do nose work? Sure. What the heck? And that to me is like the perfect foundation for anything that I can build on. And I'm not saying all border collies or all herding dogs are like that because we know that's not true as well, that you really want to choose if you have the opportunity um, from a background of dogs that does the types of things that you want to do with your dog that will up your odds of, of getting a dog that can do these things that doesn't guarantee anything because and you know much better than I do, genetics can throw you some real curveballs sometimes. And you get this random odd outlier in a group of puppies that are all bred to do the same thing. But it makes sense to start there. And for me, I always um, puppy tested. When I, And I like to start with puppies. Not that I don't think you can start with adult dogs and make a lot of progress and reach your goals, because I do think you can. But I like to start with puppies because I like puppies. I love that first year so much. I don't want to miss out on it. So I would look at a litter of puppies and puppy test them. And I know there's a lot of um, controversy about whether or not a puppy test is an accurate or valid thing in any way. Um, But I would do my own version of puppy testing. And what I saw were huge differences in the same litter of puppies that typically you could kind of categorize them as, you know, these look like they're a little too much. These look like they're not quite enough for what I want. But look, look, then there's these right in the middle. And this is the one I want. I don't want those extreme ends of the scale because that's where you run into having to do so much more work to get them to the place where they're a stable, comfortable, mature working dog. I hope some of that made sense. It did. And actually, it reminds me of at the beginning of this conversation, you told me how Zen was perfect. So maybe you could tell us where you got Zen from and how you did you pick him out of a litter? Did you have him as a baby? Yes. Yeah. Um, A couple of things with Zen. Yes, there was a litter and he was my first border collie. So I had no idea really what I was looking for. But I'd known a lot of border collies. I've been doing agility for a long time and obedience. So I knew enough of border collies. And yeah, there actually turned out a couple of things. And I do have preferences. I like male dogs mainly. I don't like to have more than one female at a time. And that's a personal preference. And so I knew I wanted a male dog. And there happened to be these red border collies. And I loved that color. So it's a terrible way to pick a dog. Don't follow my my personal preference at all. But it just turned out that there was a litter. There were others, but there were two, two red males. And so we took those two males to test them. And um, let's see, the one 
and Judy Keller and I, who trained together, you know, Judy being your roommate, my roommate, who also wrote, you know, the focus book with me, and we do all our classes and things, a lot of classes and things together. So we were testing them. And the other one, the one I did not choose, bit her in the testing. <laughs> And then I ran under the van and wouldn't come back out. And I'm like, well, that one's not going to work. Um, Zen, on the other hand, chased her through a big field and ran with her and just had a good time. And our little test that we did, everything just was great. It was like, no, he's not too wild and he's not too reserved or laid back. And so that was the, ex the extent of my testing with him. I'd done much more formal testing on other litters, particularly litters of Shelties. We, we have a friend who lives close who's a breeder and we get, Judy would get her Shelties from her. And so we would always test the litters. And sometimes we test the litter even when we weren't getting them just for fun, just because it's our idea of a fun thing to do. And my personal testing is based on, you know, a lot of reading is what some older, more traditional tests are. And then my own intuition, which may or may not be good, but it's worked out for me um, to a great extent. And I would, we would do a series of tests and rate them, you know, a typical rating scale of like a one to 10 scale and see where they fell. And I'm always looking for the middle ground. I'm always looking for those puppies that fall in the middle that don't end up being um, so hardwired and intense um, and unable to calm themselves down and energetic. I, I don't want to live with that. <laughs> and on the other hand, if it's the one that you can barely wake up to test and they're not interested in you, they're not interested in what you're doing, they don't really want to play with toys, food holds no desire for them, then that to me, no, that's going to be a hard one in the bigger picture. So I would just shoot for those that that hit that middle ground well. And typically um, that's worked. And I was able to see in many of the litters puppies even years later that I had tested. Um, and was would see things that did bear out to be the case, that the ones that in, in particular didn't recover well if something startled them, they tended to maintain that over the longer haul, and they were always going to be um, dogs that didn't have a lot of resilience. And so I didn't want that as a dog to train because I don't want to work that hard. <laughs> I want it to be easy. So it's not just the picking the right puppy out of a litter. It's also, and some might say it's more important to pick the right litter in the first place. Yes, that's, I think, a really, really good point. Um, you have to go back. Well, ideally, you would go back and take a look at the parents, the grandparents, um, the relatives that you can know. And, of course, we can know a lot. Um, when we go to a breeder who um, has kept very good records and you can take a look at pedigrees and look back in the past and see what's what. And for example, with Zen, um, I could look back and see basically a whole line of on one side of all obedience dogs that got obedience trial championships. So to me, that says a lot um, about, wow, not only were these dogs well-trained, but they must have had something in them that made it easier than the average to, to get these titles. Um, so that to me said a lot. Um, and we always do talk about, look at what the relatives have done um, and look at not only confirmation titles, not only the championship, which evaluates the look and the structure of the dog, if you care, if you care about 
that kind of thing, which a lot of people don't care about that kind of thing. But if you do, it used to be said, well, look at whether you have a lot of champions in the lines. But I think for what we want with dog sports beyond that, there is a, what kind of performance titles do you see in these lines? What do you see the relatives of these dogs doing? Um, and again, you could get that one weird outlier that even when you see all of this in the family, they're like the black sheep of the family and they don't quite do what you might expect of them. They don't quite live up to what you thought their potential was. That happens. And on the other hand, you can get a dog with the, either you don't know much about the background or what you know isn't all that great. Maybe they came from like the sort of puppy mill or backyard bred breeder thing. And every once in a while, those puppies turn out phenomenal. But I wouldn't bet money on that. If I was going to bet, I'd say, let's look at the relatives. Let's take a, a look at the bigger picture as, as far back as we can. Um, years ago, the first one of the first Shelties I got, and I wanted, I have this thing about coloring, which is, is not really good, but I wanted to buy black Sheltie. Um, Shelties come in many different coat patterns. And so sables are pretty common. Um, we've had a blue merle. We've had a tri, which is black, white, and tan. But I wanted this by Black Sheltie. And so I went to a breeder that I didn't know real well, but she had some champions in the background. That much I knew. Um, and I, I found this by Black puppy. He didn't test the way that I would have hoped. He was a little aloof, but that's part of that breed standard that they can be a little bit aloof. He was a little bit more concerned about the environment than I liked. But of course, because I wanted him to be what I wanted, I ignored that. And I pretended it didn't happen until I looked back later and realized that probably should have told me something and I should have listened to my intuition instead of trying to override it with my desire to have this dog. We learn as, as we mature. We learn from our mistakes. Uh, we hope so. I hope I learned from my mistakes, but I have a feeling I would fall into the same mistakes again. It's very hard when you've got your heart set on something to recognize that this is just not right and that this is not going to work. Um, but I got this dog and, um, you know, early training went fine. He hit about seven, eight months old and went into what we normally call a fear period. As you know, we talk about this a lot. Not necessarily as a scientific thing, but you see these times where they seem to more, be more sensitive to unpleasant or new experiences. And for him, this just globalized. And a puppy who had been seemingly okay was not okay with anything ever anywhere. He was, um, I we talk about neophobia, fear of new things, constant. He was miserable. Um, we always took our puppies with us to trials, of course, and they'd hang out and be in the car or be in a crate or whatever. And we were showing three or four weekends a month. He was miserable. By the He wouldn't even get out of the crate in the car um, because there were new things there and everything was terrifying to him. Um, and so when I started talking to people about this, turns out, um, oh, yeah, his grandfather was like that. <laughs> I'm like, thank you so much, nobody, for telling me until way after the fact that there was, and not only was he the grandfather on one side, but he ended up being grandfather on both sides. Um, and I'm like, oh, they doubled up on the worst possible trait that you could with this puppy. And that's not something you can train out of. 
No, there's there's no way you can train a dog to not be afraid of everything in the world. You can then try to make the world as comfortable as possible for them and as safe and predictable as possible for them. But that dog could never in a million years have been what I really wanted, which was a performance dog. There was just no way in that. Yeah, you can improve them, you can, mm-hmm. and, but you are always going to be sort of modifying their environment to make it manageable for them. And the sports competition environment is so challenging. It is. Incredibly challenging. Yeah, I think we don't recognize that often enough, how hard it can be for some dogs to be in those environments. Because we enjoy it. We want to do it. We're having fun with it. And we don't see that it's none of those things to some dogs. And there are dogs where you just go, oh, they should just stay home. That's a dog that needs to stay home. And that that dog actually ended up placing him um, in a home with another Sheltie. Um, the, the people were retired. They never went anywhere and they didn't want to go anywhere. And he lived out a long and happy life in their home and they were thrilled with him. He, he, he rarely you know, left the yard. So he it was perfect for him. It was very predictable. It was very safe and controlled. And so the environment worked to his advantage there. There is nothing I could have done um, that would have made him a good performance dog, much as I had wished that that was the case and what I ended up with. Yeah, it's a great illustration of the kinds of stuff we're trying to think about in this podcast. Um, and as so the, the podcast is associated with the Functional Dog Collaborative, which is intended to be a resource for helping people to breed dogs for particular functions, uh, be they purebred or mixed breed dogs. And so I would say you had one function in mind when you were getting a dog, and you found a dog who was actually ideally suited for a different function, being a stay-at-home pet. And he was great for that, right? Uh, sounds like. But mm-hmm. but it's important when you are picking a dog to think about exactly what the function you're aiming for. So do you see people making mistakes as they, you know, what would your advice be to people as they're looking for the particular function that you and I are talking about, which is a sport performance dog? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think in general, people don't realize that that's what they should be looking for. They don't know what they should be looking for. And so here's a place where a good breeder can be incredibly helpful. The breeder should be able to say to people, this is not the kind of, either this is not the breed for you, because what you want is not necessarily what they're good at or what they'd be comfortable with, or this is not the particular dog for you, but this one is. Um, So I think breeders have um, a lot of responsibility there because they've been around the litters for the seven or eight weeks before we we get a chance to even go and look at them. Though I have looked at litters as young as five weeks um, and on through. So I think trust, finding a breeder you can trust, finding a breeder who is knowledgeable about their breed, but also who is realistic about their dogs. Some breeders think every dog they produce is perfect <laughs> and can do anything they want it to do. And that's not any more true, you know, than every child is perfect. <laughs> uh, you know, we just know that there are some, we all have strengths and, strengths and weaknesses and different litters and different puppies will have strengths and weaknesses as well. So having the chance to observe that, knowing as um, somebody who's looking for a dog for a particular function, right? 
And my, the function that I look for, of course, has changed over time. Um, it used to be I would be looking for the dog that was definitely more energetic, that seemed to have a lot more interest in activity and in doing things. And as I've gotten older and stopped showing, it's like, no, that's not the dog I want now. I'm much more happy with more mellow. Okay? Um, I, I can certainly... Oh, you know, develop motivation in a dog. I have confidence I can do that. So I'll take one that needs a little more of that than one that's that's high, than one that's way over the top all the time and needs a lot of activity in order to be comfortable and happy. So knowing not only what you want to do with the dog, I want to do agility with the dog and I did agility for many years, but how are you going to live with this dog? What's your day-to-day -day life with the dog going to look like as well? Um, because a lot of dogs are not happy with a laid back lifestyle. So we want to do agility on the weekends and then we want them to hang out all week while we work and do nothing and do next to nothing. Maybe go to class once or twice a week. That's not really fair to a lot of dogs, I don't think. I think we're, we're expecting them to be what we want in the moment and um, rather than to be what we want in the bigger picture, if that makes if that makes any sense. So, you know, it's like, what's the overriding thing? I'm going to live with this dog a whole lot more than I'm going to show a dog. So first of all, can I live with whatever the demands of this type of dog are? Um, um, people are often surprised. Um, I belong to um, uh, one Facebook group of many I'm on is a, is a huge group of people who hike with their dogs. So it's just hiking with dogs. It's just a general group. And I was on it because I like to hike with my dogs. And I guess it's no surprise to me that you see so many Siberian Huskies in this group. So many. I think they're overrepresented for the breed, um, for how many there are of the breed in general, because they need so much physical activity all the time. And so people discover, well, I got this dog. Now I have to hike with it five, 10 miles a day in order for it to sleep at night. And so thinking about what you're really getting yourself into when you decide you're going to choose a particular type of dog. And when you think about, okay, what's my hobby with this dog? I like to let, as I've gotten older and smarter, <laughs> maybe smarter, I like to let the dog tell me what they want to do. And rather than me choosing completely on, I must do this sport with this dog, or this dog has to be my everything dog who gets all the titles. Okay? At one point in time, that's that was sort of what I wanted, was that everything dog who can do a lot of different things. And I was lucky enough to have a couple of those. And now it's more along the lines of, what is this dog really like? What, what really appeals to them? And I can't know that when I pick out my puppy necessarily. So I have to be open to changing what I want to do so that it's something that both the dog and I enjoy. If it's only what I enjoy and the dog isn't having a good time, that's not really fair. And if it's if the dog likes it, but I don't like it, I'm not going to do it, whatever it is. I'm not going to keep up with it because it's not going to be fun for me. For example, I wouldn't enjoy hunting with the dog. Even though I might like a Labrador Retriever, one of my first, my dog in grad school was a Labrador Retriever and I loved many things about her, but I wouldn't enjoy hunting with a dog. And even if my dog liked it, it probably wouldn't be something I'd do. Um, so why should I force my dog to do something that is clearly just not in their temperament and personality to enjoy? And I've, um, I found with Star, 
Um, she likes a lot of things as border collies do. They tend to be generalists and they'll again, do what you wanna do. But one of the things she really took to that surprised me was nose work. And I, that wasn't even on my radar. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't even nose work when I got her. So that was a, like a brand new thing. But then I, I dabbled in it and she just was like, oh, I got this, you know, and she, she enjoyed that and enjoys that to a great extent. Um, so I wouldn't have gotten a dog for nose work. <laughs> that would not have occurred to me. But it turned out that that's something that we can enjoy together and do together. So I, I worry about people who are so focused on a sport that they forget that they need to discover with the dog what they want to do and then compromise, you know, um, and do a little bit of, of what you both like. But please don't push a dog that really, really doesn't like something and keep thinking it'll get better because typically it goes the opposite direction and it tends to get worse unless you change your approach drastically. I was thinking the other day that every dog loves nose work. <laughs> how do we, how do we end up getting into any other sport? I was thinking maybe every dog I get from now on, I'll ask, what do you really want to do? And if I offer them nose work, I think most, well, a lot of dogs would, would choose that. I think all dogs would enjoy it. Maybe not all dogs would have it be there most fun thing, but I think all dogs enjoy it. Yeah, I think there's, well, there are um, the things that are general to dogs like sniffing. So, you know, we know dogs love sniffing. That's pretty common that they, that they would enjoy that. Um, but then there are things that are much more specific to the type of dog, like herding for a herding breed or IPO for some of the working breeds. Um, not that you can't do it with a different dog, um, or a different type of dog, but they just seem to, they, they seem to have been bred, they purposely have been bred for those kinds of activities. So they're probably gonna fall in there a little more than the more general kinds of things that we see. Um, like I think Rally is pretty much along those lines, Rally, that you could do it with a lot of dogs. Some won't love it, but they'll do it. <laughs> Others will think it's the best thing that ever happened to them. So it falls on that on that continuum a little bit. But yeah, the sniffing thing for sure. When they came up up on the idea of scent sports, I think they really hit on something that's that's great for so many dogs for for so many reasons. So Zen apparently really liked both agility and sort of rally obedience type stuff. Mm -hmm. So what do you think it was about him that made him like going in that direction? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a little hard. Um, I would say, why, why, why did Zen seem to be the kind of dog that you could have done anything with? And somebody more dedicated than me could have done a lot more, could have continued on to higher titles in everything. Um, but I think a big part of that, though, I say somebody not me could have done better. But at the same time, a big part of our success was that we had a strong foundation of working well together um, and that I worked very hard with him from the moment I got him to make working with me, no matter what we're doing, the absolute best thing you could ever imagine. And I, I do this a lot. Um, and that's why I like that first year of life so much. I said, I really enjoy puppies and I really want the first year, even though I know you can develop strong relationships with dogs later in life. I've seen it over and over again. 
But that first year to me, I can I can forge that relationship that I want to have with my dog. And I can introduce my dog to all of the things that are going to be important for me to for them to be able to do. And I can expose them to a lot of different activities that we're going to do together. Yet at the core of all of it is I'm teaching my dog, and this goes back to focus, um, to focus training. I'm teaching my dog that I am always the best bet for getting what they want in life. And I am always the one who is going to give them the opportunity to have the most fun. It's going to be with me. We're going to always have the most fun together. Everything we do together is going to be enjoyable. And so why would they not want to do it? Why would they? There's nothing they wouldn't. They'd never say no. If my dog said, oh, I'm not interested in training with you right now. If Zen ever said that to me by his behavior, oh, I'm not interested in training with you. I'd be, let's go to the vet because clearly this dog is very sick. So for me, building that intense desire to do what I want to do, because what I want to do always works out in their best interest. And it's always a fun, fun thing for them. It's not going to be stressful. It's not going to be frustrating. It's going to be fun. And there's a lot that goes into that. It's um, when I started first teaching people this, I didn't even know how to put it into words. I didn't even know how to say, what is it I'm doing that's allowing me to be successful at this? And how do I tell you even what it is? And then how do I give you steps to get there? Because to me, a lot of it was very organic and very intuitive and how it's just how I live with my dog. It's how I live with my puppy. But I took a lot of time <laughs> to try to figure it out so that I could share it with people and so they could have that same level of success if, you know, if they do these things and if they work through these these steps and exercises. But I think that's a big part of, of what I had there. And as I said, I had pretty much the same thing with Star, though she never got a chance to show an agility. Um, but she still wants to do whatever I want to do and whenever I want to do it. And so I, I worked through that the same way with her, even better because I knew more. But even though she's much more sensitive. So for example, in rally, I could take Zen into rally anywhere, anytime, any place, and fine. You'd get a hundred pretty regularly. Um, Star loved it, wanted to do it, really motivated, but the environment bothered her just a little bit more. And so I had to do more work to make sure she was comfortable and that she felt confident and that she felt good about what we were doing, which at one point led to um, barking in the ring because she would get so excited and then she would start barking. So then we had to work through how do we get rid of the barking yet keep the enthusiasm level high. So I, I worked through that and, and got to the point where that worked out pretty well, um, where, where it ended up that, that we would get minimal barking and she could still work at a pretty high level. Um, but that was, and, and the difference between the two of them, I think is emotional stability and confidence. And, and I think Zen has that very naturally. He's just a stable dog. And even if something upset him, which I've rarely seen happen in his entire life, just well, whatever, it's another thing. It's gone. It's better. Star, on the other hand, takes things a little more seriously and takes them to heart. And she has a harder time recovering from them. And I always talk about this as, as the um, characteristic of resilience. 
that I think is so important in dogs. And I want a resilient dog. I want a dog that's going to bounce back because bad things are going to happen to them in life. I don't want to have to babysit them all the time. I don't want to have to constantly be worried that something's going to happen that they can't get over. Okay. And so I'm always looking for that resilience. So I think with Zen, it was a mix of having that resilience um, already naturally and me being smart enough not to mess it up and to capitalize on it in terms of building the way that we work together um, early in his life. So that working with me was always and still is the thing that he wants to do whenever, whenever you want to do it. Totally. All right. So if we were talking about what are the personality traits that make a dog a really good prospect for being a performance dog. So you talked about being really interested in working with you. Yes. Um, which you can get, you know, as you said, border collies are primed. <laughs> Many of them are, they are more likely mm -hmm. um, to be interested in that, but you see that in a lot of other breeds as well. Yes. You talked about, so I don't, I might say that resilience and sensitivity are sort of flip sides of the same coin, right? Yeah. I would agree that those, those two things are. Yes. You don't want, um, I mean, we talk about when you use the term like hard dog and a soft, and a soft dog in yeah. terms of their temperament, not that they're hard to train or easy to train, but the harder dog can take a whole, can withstand a whole lot of unpleasantness and keep going. Whereas the soft dog, one little bad thing and they fold. Um, they, they can't manage that. So again, I, I always, I want that middle of the road, if I can possibly find that. I want the one that's tough enough to withstand unpleasant things, but not so tough that they don't care what I think, okay, or that my opinion doesn't matter to them, because I want my opinion to matter to them. I want them to want me to be happy, just like I want them to be happy. I want this all to work out, um, which sounds like an odd thing to say. So I want, I always go for moderate um, in energy level, physical energy level. Okay? I, uh, you know, I'm a couch potato person. It takes a lot to get me off the sofa and moving. I do it because I know I should, but it's not easy. So I don't, you know, I don't need a dog that is in constant motion. I don't want a dog that can't settle down and that can't relax and that can't hang out on the sofa with me in the evening for hours while I read or whatever I'm doing. Um, so I, I, I look at physical energy and, and think a lot about that. On the other hand, we know with physical energy, there are dogs that you can barely get off the sofa. I mean, I could get myself a nice little, you know, lap dog of some sort that wouldn't want to move and we'd be perfectly fit for me sitting around my house. But that wouldn't be the dog that I want to take out and then try to do sports with, because that wouldn't be fair to that dog. You know, that dog that's very happy to be a lap dog. No, well, let him be a lap dog. Why not do that? So I do think about that energy level. Um, so resilience, energy level. Um, we we one of the things that we often talk about now, and it's kind of a buzzword in um, dog training, is arousal levels. And so arousal levels to me have to do with emotional arousal, how excited you get, how enthusiastic you get, how how then you can come back down to a baseline or a normal level. Um, and I 
we see a huge difference in arousal levels. And I think, I think much of this is genetics, um, that we're breeding high dogs. We're breeding dogs that want to do something, must do something, almost, you know, think Malinois, <laughs> you know, it's obsessed to do something, must keep active, you know, at all times. And, and I, I feel like I should mention here while I'm saying things is that we're clearly talking in stereotypes about some of the breeds. Yes. Ex no, excellent point. So why don't you say a little bit more what you mean about that? Cause I think that's a really good point. Okay. The stereotypes thing or the, yeah, just um, so when you, when you say that you're talking about uh, a breed stereotype, then you're warning people. Right. That this is kind of gathered from what we commonly believe to be true of the breed, but that's, just kind of the mythical average for this breed or type of dog. That doesn't mean, again, that the one that you're looking at is going to have all those qualities. So when I say something about a Malinois that's constantly got to be active and wants to bite things all the time, they love to bite things. That feels very good to them. It's highly self-reinforcing to bite things. Um, that doesn't mean that the one you get will have those qualities, but your odds are good <laughs> that that's what you're gonna see. You know? Hashtag not all Malinois. Right, right. But we still talk not about many. it. Yeah, we talk about them that way because we've seen that. We've seen this trend or this pattern in this type of dog. And many have been bred to be that way on purpose. They're bred to be more active. They're bred to be bitier so they can be used in those bite sports um, and have that natural desire to do those things. Herding dogs are very much bred to be interested in movement in the environment and not only interested in it, but to want to get out there and control it and to cause the and to change the movement and to make it faster or slow down or move this way or that way that's very much what they're bred for um so then we're surprised when they chase kids that are running um that's ridiculous because of course they do that's what they do um and again you might have the border collie that never did that and that's fine that happens too i took zen herding this is one thing he wasn't good at <laughs> we went to a herding clinic um with ducks he was terrified of them and he would not even look at them, let alone herd them. Terrified. And and <laughs> all he wanted was out of the barn. That was it. And people were kind of almost like, you could see them almost feeling sorry for me. Like, oh, that's a shame. And, and then they'd say like, well, maybe he'd be different on sheep. And I'm like, no, he wouldn't. <laughs> he would be even more terrified. Well, little did they know that you had the perfect dog. Exactly. But not perfect for somebody who wanted to do herding. No. If they had wanted him for herding, and he does have siblings who have herding titles, who knows why, you know, they that that dog did well with it. And on the other hand, he's got none of that in him. So back to those weirdnesses of genetics. So yeah, I'm gonna figure all that out for you guys. So don't worry, just give me a couple of years, maybe six months. <laughs> it's coming really soon. I appreciate that. And then you can tell us exactly <laughs> which dog is gonna be the exact right thing for what we want to do. Yeah, for those who don't know that I'm joking, that was a joke. It's going to be a long, hard road for us to get there. But okay, so that was, so that was, it was good. I think we really needed to pause and, and cover what we meant by stereotypes because it's easy for people to assume that if I get a border collie, I will have exactly, exactly what I'm looking for, that I can predict exactly what it's going to be just based on breed. Right. And that is so far from the truth. Um, I've seen people in agility 
who start out with whatever their pet dog was, who's a perfectly nice dog, but just never could get real motivated, didn't have the desire, didn't have the skills, whatever. And then they decide, well, their second dog, what are they going to do? They want to do well in agility. They're going to get a border collie. And how does that end? Often very badly because now they've just got the opposite set of problems. Now they've got a dog who is too much dog for them, who is so fast and so quick and needs information and wants to know what to do and you're not able to keep up with them. So now you have a totally different set of problems, but it's no better really than the problem you had on the last dog. Um, and probably because you came from a dog with no motivation, you thought you should build drive in your border collie um, by getting them all jazzed up and doing a whole lot of tug and active play, which made the problem even worse. They don't need that. <laughs> Most of them do not need any more than what they're already born with. Uh, so we tend to do the wrong things with the wrong dogs um, based on our last dog. Yeah, it, it's such a common story. Um, that every, yeah, people just are swinging back and forth between the two ends of the spectrum. And yeah. it, it's, it's not, and we've talked about this before, but it's not just the, the second time sport dog owner that falls prey to this, right? I think we see in people who are, who have breeding programs for sport dogs, that there's this push to start breeding these higher and higher octane dogs these days. Right. Um, I've just been, aw I've been aware recently of several like a handful of litters of different border collies, um, because I, that's the breed I kind of keep an eye on. And they're mainly being advertised as, well, these are, are going to be world team dogs, meaning these are, these are dogs that are going to be so high energy and so fast and so quick to learn that you can be on the world team with them. Like, I don't even think, I think that's false advertising to a large extent. Um, now, granted, what you do is if you, if you have the right material there and you place them with people who have the capacity to be world team trainers and handlers, then you've got a good match. And, and that's what they're, that's what they're saying. So they take high performing border collies, let's say, because that's just because what I'm familiar with. Um, they take high performing mother, high performing father. These are fast, highly intense, you know, probably high winning dogs, put them together and say, okay, now, now we've got all these puppies that are going to just get gold, medal, gold medals at Worlds from now on. Okay? That's not what tends to happen in the long run. Now, they may do very well for the right person. <laughs> in the right setting. But if you give one of those dogs to somebody who um, doesn't really yet have the experience in the sport, they're not going to do well. They're not a, they're not a starter dog. <laughs> they're not a dog to learn on. Um, and on the other hand, you're going to what, you know, this by chance in terms of genetics, they're not all going to be high, high dogs. You're, you're still going to have variation in energy levels, variation in arousal levels. And what worries me, because I work a lot with people whose dogs um, are too high, <laughs> um, the other end of our spectrum of problems from too low is too high, is that these dogs are not comfortable in their own skin. They're not happy and relaxed almost ever, you know. Um, we talk in, in herding dogs about breeding dogs with an off switch. And what people mean by that is when you need them to do something, they're a thousand percent. 
And when they're not working, they can chill. Lots of these guys, when you breed for higher and higher arousal and keep breeding high arousal dogs to other high arousal dogs, they've got no off switch. So what does that look like? Can you operationalize that for us? So at so in the house, what does it look like? And then in the ring, in the agility ring, what does that look like? Right. Okay. That's a very good question because um, we're scientists. We're all about the operation. Yes. Yeah. So in the house, a dog with an off switch can just go relax. They can go lay down. They can amuse themselves. They can chew on a bone. They can take a nap. They're not constantly on you to do something with them. And Zen is perilously on the edge with this because every once in a while I'll look across the room and he'll be sitting there staring at me. He's learned not so much to keep bothering me but he's waiting he's hoping yeah will you do something now and every, and then everyone's going to come and start dropping toys on me you know here's a toy what about this one what about this? and then i that, there's no off switch there that is not an off switch that is they constantly trying to get me to turn on so instead of me trying to get him to work he's trying to get me to work i heard a story um about a border collie recently who got so aroused when they played ball with her that the family stopped playing ball with her. So then what the this dog did was she would go find a ball. She would wait until people were standing in the kitchen doing dishes so that they were ignoring her. And she would put the ball right next to the foot and then go wait until the person moves <laughs> until they tripped over the ball. And then she would, with great excitement, go fetch the ball, retrieve it, and put it back next to the foot again. That doesn't surprise me. I would not be surprised about that at all because they're very good at problem solving typically and figuring out how to get what they want. And so I could see that happening, that um, that a dog would do something like that. But a dog that becomes obsessed with action and movement, that's where we get into trouble. And with herding dogs, we do see that a lot. They become so obsessed with it, they can't leave it alone. They can't relax because it might happen. It's possible. And I do have to admit, I pick up, there are certain toys that I always put away when we're done playing. Because if I don't put them away, we we don't stop. We just, he can't let it go. His holy ball is his kryptonite. You know, he's like such an obsession with it. So we don't play, we play with it, but then we put it away. Um, but a dog with an off switch, he could let it go. They go, okay, we're done now. And the dog go, okay. We're done now and move on to something else and be able to gear down in energy and intensity level. So that that's sort of what we mean by an off switch. A dog yeah, that knows when it's appropriate exactly. to be on, but also when it's not and when I can just go hang out and act like a normal dog. And it can be challenging, right, to live with dogs that don't have that. I um, So my my new Border Collie has... has as some people know, is I only been here for a few months and I think he's going to settle in just fine. But one of the things he's working on right now is he gets really overly aroused if he thinks I'm going to open the door to go back to go outside. I walk by that door frequently. And so I'll walk past it and he starts vulturing, right? Because he's like, oh my God, the door. Well, I can't put the door away. <laughs> like the holy <laughs> ball, right? So right. it's, and that's, you know, that's, that's not a massive problem. The dog's not going to be rehomed for that, but it's exhausting to live with a dog where you're constantly worrying about their arousal level. Yes, it is exhausting. And I think that's one of the dangers that we run into whenever we're picking for an extreme or whenever you're breeding for an extreme is that you could possibly end up with these dogs um, that are running at a thousand miles an hour all the time. And that just, like I say, I don't think that can be comfortable. I don't think that can be, they're never relaxed. They're never calm. Um, A myth that I've heard 
And I, I hear it a lot in Border Collies is that the red dogs are crazy. The red ones are crazy. And the idea being that their arousal levels are somehow not as easily controlled, that they tend to, in general, somehow going along with coat color, is this higher arousal level. Now, I can't say one way or the other whether that's true or not, because red border collies are, are kind of rarer in the breed anyway. Um, and I'm sure color genetics can be connected to God knows what other possible traits. I mean, everything's connected to everything at some point in time. But that was the myth that people didn't want um, red border collies as herding, as herding dogs because they were too crazy. They were too wild. They would get too high. And so they would call those puppies when they were born. So you don't have a lot of reds because... They, they weren't allowed to survive. Selection against them. For what it's worth, there's the same story in the Labrador Retriever world. Do you know this? That the uh, chocolate labs are the crazy labs. Um, yes. And that's, we get asked that in the laboratory where I work a lot. <laughs> we have, you know, mm -hmm. we go back and forth. I think a lot of us don't believe it could possibly be true because we understand the gene that controls that coat color so well. Um, but yeah. who knows? Yes. That's the yeah. That's the interesting thing about genetics to me is is we don't know for sure, um, and so as a breeder, you don't really know what you're going to produce. Um, what you intend to produce is one thing. What actually comes out of that could be so vastly different because there's so much that's unknown about it, and you know, including things like you know the breeds where you're breeding specifically for something like ear set. Okay, you know, and so what goes along with that though? What else do you get when you get upright ears? You know, that could pop, or you get tipped ears, or whatever it is that's required for that breed. Um, I'm always fascinated by what else could possibly be going along with that. So you're getting the the structure and the look you want in that dog, but what else is underlying that? Because I'm so much more interested in the temperament. I'm so much more interested in what's happening underneath than what the dog looks like. Even though clearly I like my red dogs, <laughs> I still want. We we all have our, yeah, I like dogs with long hair and I keep telling myself it's not that important. And the behavior, no. But we all, you know, you like what you like for sure. Yeah. All right. So um, dogs with no off switch, difficult to live with. Some people would say, I'll take a dog that's tough to live with if it, you know, will get me where I want to go in the ring. So then what do these high arousal dogs tend to look like in the ring? Hey, well, this is a problem. It can be a problem because high arousal dogs are reacting to stimuli. They're reacting so fast to the things that they perceive around them that they're not thinking. They're not taking a moment to make a good choice or decision. They're a constant bundle of reactions. So to get them to stop and think is the hard part, right? Because they're all go, 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 do, do, do. And if, um, a friend of mine used to say about her border collie, she needs the information faster, 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 faster. And if you don't give it to them, they will just spin off and do whatever they think is the right thing to do next. And then they're they're going and, and getting them back and getting them to think is almost impossible. And we see this a lot. If you look at dogs on the agility start line and you see these highly intense dogs, you can probably guess when you see them on the start line how the run is going to go. And you'll see the ones that you mentioned vulturing, <laughs> vulturing, like sitting so far forward, they're practically falling over because they want to move. And just having to hold that start line stay is hard. And they bust through the first jump and they take an off course and, and the handler's doing whatever they're trying to do and it's not helpful. 
hollering and pointing at the junk this way. Yeah. yeah. Waste of time at that point because they, they can't even hear you anymore. Um, so that's the dog whose arousal has taken them out of the realm of thoughtful cognition. They can no longer listen and respond appropriately. They're just doing whatever seems like the next thing as fast as they possibly can. And I've actually seen dogs that sort of get into loops where like tunnel, 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 and you can't stop them. And again, that's not that's not what we want. If you want a dog who's going to win, okay, it can't just be because they run fast and they're high. It needs to be because they take direction well. And so that's a whole different thing from arousal level. Arousal has to come down in order for a dog to be able to take direction and to do the thing that you're asking them to do. So this idea that if I just build them up and I get all this energy level in, um, then we spend a heck of a lot of time trying to figure out, I talk about a moderating arousal levels all the time with my students. So my dog's now at 11. How do I get them back down to five? Um, how do I get them somewhere in this normal range where they can think? Um, and people discover that when they've gotten that dog who they thought was going to be that world winner. <laughs> and now the dog is just, just so eager to do things so fast that there's no way they're ever qualifying. You don't qualify. And it's very frustrating. I've, I've run those dogs in agility. I've had those dogs. And so I can tell you it's very frustrating when you have a dog that you know has all this potential, okay, but they get over aroused. And then getting them back to the place where they can listen to you um, is a long, hard road to get there. So and it's I was just going to ask if you would differentiate between arousal level and energy level. Yes, I would. I think energy level is part of arousal level. I think there's a physical energy for sure that the dog can be as physically active as they want to be and it, they enjoy it. They enjoy being active. It feels good to them. It's like, I don't understand it, but some people feel good when they run. I don't get it. <laughs> but um, It's perplexing, but it seems to be true. But then to me, arousal level is also very much about emotion. Um, it's about this internal state of how you feel. Okay? Um, and so, as I said, it feels good. It's like, I always call these dogs adrenaline junkies. It's like they're there. They, they, it feels good to them to be high. It feels really, really good. And so they want to keep repeating that and getting high. So there's all this internal stuff going on, I think. And then in terms of the, the ability to think, I think your cognitive level matters and you lose that ability to think clearly because it's all just action, action, action. Um, so I think there's some internal processes that are going on in addition to having physical energy itself, because you can have physical energy and you can still think and you can still make good decisions and choices and you can still listen, or you can have a high arousal level where all of that stuff just goes out the window and you are in a state where nothing good is going to come of that. I mean, once a dog gets in that state, I always tell people nothing good is going to happen next. You know, we've got to get them back out of it. You can't learn anything when you're in that state. Um, people often want to replicate this state in training to, to um, 
try to teach the dog something, but you have to learn it in a lower arousal state. You don't learn well in that overwhelming high arousal state. So learning to get that state down is where I feel you know, rather than saying, oh, let's get them really high and then teach them some lesson. It's like, uh, uh, no, <laughs> that's probably we're going to work. Okay. All right. So if I, if we're talking about what a good personality, what good traits for a, a working performance dog in, in agility is what we've been talking about. So let's just stick with that. Okay. So we're talking about a dog who's resilient, not too sensitive, a mm-hmm. dog who likes, really feels strongly about working with his handler. Uh, a dog who has a nice moderate energy level and mm-hmm. it does not get highly aroused too easily. Yes. So maybe, hopefully this is a fair question, but so if you're looking at a dog like this running the course, so what does that look like? So you, you know, you put the dog at the start line and you mm-hmm. talk about the vulturing forward, right? But so what does this dog look like as it runs the course? Um, I would say that when you see a dog that's, stops you and draws your attention. Um, and, and and in agility, this will happen. It'll be like, yeah, dogs are running, you're not paying attention. All of a sudden you look at one, you go, whoa, look at that. And it's typically, there is an intensity, but it's almost like they're able to multitask a little bit. And I hate that term, but I'm using it anyway, because it's split between what they are physically doing and what they are being told. So they've got part of their focus on their on their handler while they are performing the thing that they are supposed to be doing at the moment but they're able to split that focus just enough to do the thing while listening and do the next thing while listening when you see the dog streaking straight across the ring as if there's no handler present, that's not what we're looking for. And I've had, again, I've had that dog. I've been on the start line and my dog took off and hit the tunnel clear on the opposite side of the ring before I knew that the dog was even moving. That's not helpful. You know, people are like impressed, but why would you be? Because I didn't have any, I didn't have any communication with my dog. So I guess what part of what this goes back to for me would be the dog that, that would be the one that I would be most impressed with is the one that's got a clear communication system with the handler and yet at the same time is confident and independent enough to keep going and to do what they're supposed to do without being without babysitting they don't need somebody right there yet at the same time they're always checking back in maybe not stopping and turning because then I'll slow you down but you know they're listening that one ear is always open for what they're being told to do next. Yeah, I really like that. I think it, I think actually you can sum it up as communication. I hadn't thought of it this way before, yeah. but all those things you talked about come into communication, right? So there's there's the interest in the handler, obviously, but if you're too sensitive, you're gonna be really distracted by the environment and you can't communicate with your handler. If exactly. you're too aroused, you're too distracted and you can't communicate with your handler. And if your energy level is too low or too high, then you're not where your handler is and able to work with them. That, I think that that is what it turned out to be, which is sort of surprising to me too, because I didn't offer, I didn't really think about it, but it is communication with the handler, I think. And back to, I always call it working relationship, but kind of the same thing. I'm getting information from the dog that's determining how I act and the dog's getting information from me that determines how they act. And it's a quick, a very fast back and forth kind of communication. And in the best teams in agility, it's shorthand. 
it takes so little for the for the trainer to tell the dog exactly what to do. And the dog is very confident that, oh, yes, this is the right thing. Okay. Um, because I trust that what you're telling me is always the right thing. And I'm, and I'm interested in doing what you tell me. And so that's, yeah, that does, I think, come down to a lot of communication. And that takes a while to develop. That takes some time. If you have the dog who is all on his own agenda and who is sitting on the start line eyeing that tunnel across the ring, no matter what you say or do, there's no communication at that moment. They, they're, they're done. They know what they're doing, and that is exactly how it's going to end up, and it's not going to end well. So, yeah, I think um, teaching the dog the communication system with you is is such an important thing, and we spend a lot of time working on that with arousal as well, just telling them simple things like, here, you can have this cookie or wait, I will bring this cookie to you, just a simple communication, but it makes a big difference. Yeah, it's, it's so it's both genetics and environment. As you're saying, it's a lot of work to get there. But it's yes. good to have a dog with a solid, sort of a solid genetic foundation to head them in the right direction to get there. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So that might be a good note for us to end on. Can you um, tell people where they can find out more about you or what kind of stuff you have coming up? You have a webinar this evening, so that's going to be passed by the time this airs. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. The webinar will be will be coming gone. We can try to yeah, we can try to air this before June. Though you probably have a class in June. Oh, yes. I've always got something coming up. So people can find um, me. I have a website. It's K9 in focus. So K the number nine, I-N-F-O-C-U-S, K9 in focus.com. I have a website there. Um, you can find me at online at Fenzy Dog Sports Academy, which is where I do the majority of my work. So that's where you'll see uh, I'm teaching my focus class actually in June. Um, I have two, I have, it's two, there are two different classes. I get focused in June and then focus gains in August. So we have the, I have that coming up. And yes, I have a bunch of webinars and workshops and there's always projects that I'm working on. It seems like there's a never ending amount of dog training stuff that I can do. So um, you can find out more about all that there. I, I write a weekly blog post um, through my website and, um, I'm always post, I'm always on Facebook with stuff like that. And so you can find the blog post there. I'm working on getting newsletters started. So you have a cooperative care website as well, I believe. It's the, the website isn't up yet, but, um, I have a Facebook page. Yeah. Um, it's called cooperative care with Deb Jones. There's a Facebook page and a YouTube channel, and we're working on putting together a cooperative care certificate program that people can work through and earn. So cooperative care just briefly is all the husbandry work you do for grooming and veterinary care. So breaking that down, teaching our dogs to tolerate a whole lot of what they think is nonsense and weird stuff so that we can take good physical care of them. All that falls under cooperative care. So yeah, you can find those that on Facebook or on my YouTube channel um, as well. So yeah, lots of projects going on there, but you can find me, I'm online. Yes. Yes, you are. All right. Well, fabulous. Thank you so much. This was a blast. No, thanks, Jessica. I always have fun talking to you. Always <laughs> thanks. We always have a good time together. We do always have a good time together. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Sarah Espinosa Socal. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. 
To learn more about the Functional Dog Collaborative, check out functionalbreeding.org. Enjoy your dogs.